0: Live from the heart of Lincoln, America. Welcome to Ticket Weeknights on 93.7 The Ticket and theticketfm.com. Welcome to the first Inside the Huddle with yours truly, Jay Foreman. Always like to introduce myself just in case you don't uh, recognize that voice on your, uh, coming through your radio or your streaming uh, system or, uh, Download them on the podcast in the future, but it's the first one. uh, And, and, you know, Ric Flair has a little saying that he used to tell the ladies. uh, You can't be first, but you can be uh, next. And so you're going to be listening to the first one of Jay Foreman. uh, Breaking down all things Huskers after the game. Um, It's been a long time coming, so it'll be my analysis uncut. Uh, Some interviews from uh, some of my teammates or colleagues around the nation. Uh, giving their thoughts on Nebraska and some college football. And um, it'll always be a quick hour. But the first one, I'd like to recap kind of the last four and a half years of the Scott Frost era. Um, Obviously, I think it's probably been combed over some, but uh, never been able to give uh, my personal opinion without any, I guess, interjection, which is good. But, you know, everybody always wants to ask, what do you really think as a former teammate, former player, former alumnus and somewhat of a media member that has a little bit more of a connection to the program than say somebody that didn't play in the program. So, uh, you know, first and foremost, you know, I think it's, you know, when you think about Scott Frost and the university of Nebraska, I think it, everybody, um, thought it was a good hire and anybody that says, Oh, I knew it was going to fail was probably lying to you, um, to your face and, you know, I think the magical year, you know, obviously with UCF gave uh, Nebraska a ton of hope after having Mike Riley, uh, who essentially was the analogy that I used for Mike Riley was Nebraska had dated a brown haired girl and maybe, you know, she had a little bit of attitude, you know, and it got a little bit out of control. And so we just dated the nicest blonde haired girl we could get and didn't do any. Uh, Pre-dating, it was almost like the uh, new age dating of swiping right or swiping left, and said, "You know what, blonde hair, nice smile, the nicest person that uh, you know everybody thought thought of, and you've been a coach that we can kind of put in place and run over, and just be a placeholder, knowing that we don't want you around long term." And (laughs) that was, you know, before we get into Scott Frost, I will tell you my initial reaction to, excuse me, Mike Riley. Being hired was I was in Omaha at Pizon's Pizza. I'll never forget it. My uh, two daughters were in town. And, you know, it was, it was to the point that where, you know, Nebraska had fired Bo and we were in the process and you hear about all these names. And then people started mentioning, okay, well, we can't hire a coach because we started to get past the long process. And we had just got the uh, Jay Foreman slice of pizza up there at uh, Matt Verzal, former teammates, Paizan Pizza. And I got my slice, and I saw it on the on the ticker. Nebraska hires Mike Riley. Checked my phone, thinking it or hoping it was a lot like, of spoof, but <laughs> since it was a on the ticker, it was true. I literally dropped my pizza. <laughs> literally dropped my pizza and yelled out, "WTF!" Like I couldn't believe it. And you know, the, you know, when you try to talk about Scott Frost, you, 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 have to talk about Mike Riley, but not like how Scott Frost talked about Mike Riley, right? You got to always talk about how did you get to Scott Frost, right? And sometimes you can get blinded or smokescreen by getting to the end result without recognizing what you did in the, in the previous, you know, decision. And so, you know, I felt like Mike Riley, you know, was, probably on his way out as a, at his alma mater, Oregon State. I think he did some great things up there, but definitely was under some heat.
1: Um, he was at 93 yeah. uh, and 80 overall record. Right. And like you said, time was ticking for him, and that's why the one that you probably dropped your pizza because you're <laughs> going from Bo Pelini for a guy that's just over 500.
0: Right. And the thing about Bo – is and if you don't recognize that voice that's Harrison in there you know people have a recognizable voice and I always like listen to Harrison because uh, you know I recognize his voice and then he's a young man so it's like dang you, you got some soul in you but <laughs> um, the thing about Bo Pellini, I would say is Bo I think came in had obviously had tremendous success and you know probably too much success early or, and gave too much too early. Um, but then when he wanted to do better, he didn't have the support. Of shine I I know that for a fact. When he wanted to recruit and being able to, you know, go and have access to, you know, say private planes or more money mm-hmm. into recruiting, actually I did the opposite and took back some of the funding and stuff like that and options. And so then that's where the frustration, probably from Bo, when we heard the recording, which is another thing in Nebraska history, the recording and stuff like that. Um, magically got out, and uh, that's where his frustration uh, came. But then Nebraska decided – it's almost like they went into a Rolodex of coaches and said, who's the exact opposite of Bo Pelini?
1: That's the way it looked. It was. It is. You look at Mike Riley's temperament. It is. Like you said, it's polar opposite. Right. Nice Mike. Mm-hmm. Great, great
0: guy. Actually, a great coach. I mean, let's be honest. To go up to Oregon State and have the success and recruit and develop and put guys in the NFL the way he did – um, it, it works and you've seen him at different places. It works. It works in these kind of like spinoff, you know, professional leagues. It mm-hmm. works. Right. But the thing that was most alarming about Mike Riley to me was when he said, I took the job sight unseen. He said he looked up Nebraska on YouTube. So therefore it let me know how that process went. You got down to like the 30th guy on your list. And it said, the nicest guy, and he he had NFL connections. It kind of could, on the white paper, look really good. 500 coach. so That means he's a 500 coach, regardless of where he's at. But won't ruffle feathers, and we can kind of, you know, control him and, you know, X, Y, and Z, as, you know, we'll get into this, how they did control him and really curtailed Mike Riley to have any success, right? And... Then we'll we'll hire you. And the best thing about it, Harrison, is for a coach that's at his alma mater. So just say if I'm at Nebraska, or you say even like Scott Frost, is like a, a school comes in that's on a whole higher level than where he's at at Oregon State, which is being Nebraska at that mm-hmm. time. It says we're not only gonna we'll, we'll hire you. We're gonna pay you and your whole staff almost double than what you're making at Oregon State. That, that's you have to take a sight unseen. That's like somebody selling a house and say, you know what? I'm coming in from Washington state. I don't care. I just see your house has four bedrooms, you know, three baths, one, you know, two-car garage. I'll pay you twice and you got to be gone. And so, you know, I think the tenure of Mike Riley led to the hiring of Scott Frost, which might have been a little bit too early, right? And I also think that, you know, some of the things in place wasn't, you know, in the right uh place for Mike Riley to have successful or a career or a tenure, and Scott Frost had a, a successful ter, uh, tenure as well. Because when you think about Mike, Mike Riley, and then I'll move on to Scott Frost's, you know, first year. Okay, you understand. Okay, you're a little suspect. Then he starts to get some recruits in, a little bit of bow recruits. He starts doing some doing well. Um, Banker, the defensive coordinator, turns the defense around to a top thirty defense where they actually started to look like they were on the upswing. You go from the bottom 30 to, you know, the 30, I think they were 30th ranked mm-hmm. uh, defense. So that's a big turnaround, regardless of if it's schedule circumstances or not, they looked like a better defense. They looked faster. They looked more physical. They had some NFL talent, which obviously end up getting drafted. And then while bankers recruiting, more players to play in his defense, as if there's somebody on that staff that, that should have had some stability, would be a coach that took his defense from the bottom to the you know second or or top third mm-hmm. and I-Course decides to tell Mike Riley you need to fire the coach while he's in the airport on a recruiting trip because I-Course decided that he wanted Bob Diaco to come in who just got canned at the University of Yukon I think and was the Notre Dame defensive coordinator when they had had their first run and got trounced by Alabama in the Orange Bowl that he wanted to be the head coach wanted him to be the defensive coordinator and then head coach in waiting so what people don't understand once those decisions are made you're you're taken away from the fabric of your university of your athletic department and in particular your football team so you're taking away identity right you're taking away continuity you're taking away um, you know the character that that a coach has taken a whole year to build up or try to build up and then to go and try to bring more athletes into and you hear you're supplanting a new coach who's coming in with a whole different I- identity and in particular a whole different defense
1: mm-hmm. he's so, coming from connecticut too so you can imagine that's a much different style than right. your big 10 defense
0: and then you're trying to run a 3-4 defense which a four or a 3-4 defense which you have recruited to a 4-3 defense all through bow's career fourth defense alignment and all through the first you know year or two a banker which in theory was was never going to work, mm-hmm. and then you then you bring him in with the unwritten agreement that you're going to be the head coach in waiting. And the reason why I say that is because when you have an athletic director telling everybody in the athletic department, as far as the coaches, come watch Bob Diaco coach. He's the best coach in the building. Well, you have a volleyball coach <laughs> and John Cook. That's a national champion, right? You have other coaches that are not maybe not national champions but are successful coaches. And here Bob Diaco hadn't coached a, you know, a day or won any, a game, and he's all of a sudden he's the best coach in the building. So then, therefore, now you've created a little bit of friction from who is the head coach. You know what I mean? Who's the, who's the, who's the head man in charge and who's the subordinate? Because if I read that as a defensive coordinator, and Harrison or, or anybody else is the head coach, there's not much you could tell me to do as far as my defense. Therefore, that Mike Riley tenure was over. From there on, now you just had your you held your head above water. You got kind of snowballed. You know you had the you know the strain, those comments. Well, then therefore now you're setting yourself back another four years, another four years on top of Bo Pelini kind of put his finger in the dam, you know, to stop the leakage for seven years based on the decision you know because we had hired Callahan which wasn't a potentially going to set us back 20 some years but we are at 20 some years of not being relevant right mm-hmm. in theory i feel the setback and my my right. age group feels the setback right it's a it's a setback Well, the stars align and uh, we could have hired Scott Frost when uh, you know when he had the potentially to go to Colorado State he and then he you know obviously ended up taking the UCF UCF job but then we hired Bill Moose, which was at the athletic director which was great, right? More of a people person, whereas I, course, you didn't know where he was at. He was just like Kaiser that He'd show up and then gone for like six months, and the only time you'd see him either in a statement or it seemed like when he'd do a press conference and it was cringeworthy. Mm-hmm. Well, Bill Moose was great in front of the microphone or, or in front of the TV and on the microphone, doing radio, um, going out and, you know, meeting with people and stuff like yeah, that. He was
1: publicly seen. You could yeah. go up, You could even go to a bowling event. Yeah. You, might, you might run he into him. He would be everywhere, there. and mm-hmm.
0: he was great. You know, he was very personable. And he did a really good job of what he was doing. And so here comes Bill Moose. And, you know, his main job as being the athletic director, after Scott Frost and those guys that down at UCF had won six games and obviously had the magical season where they were uh, national champions in their own right, was to hire Scott Frost. No matter what, that was his main job. No matter that, that was it. And so sometimes you can, again, as much as we talked about before the, the brown-haired girl to the blonde, the exact opposite. Well, did you really do your research, right? Did you really research the person? Did you really try to forecast, okay, well, if we bring him here and give him flat-out 100% control, how would he react to it? Or are we hiring you and letting you know I am the athletic director, right? And you're the head coach, and we're going to go through this together. Yes, you've had success, but Nebraska is a different animal than UCF. That was the number one mistake. It had nothing to do with Scott Frost. And by no means am I a Scott Frost, um, you know, make excuses for him. But I am a realist in this understanding that it's not all Scott Frost's fault by the way he acted or the way they went about things. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. the reason why is it was as good as Bill Moose was being in public relations, he was the exact opposite into molding and mentoring and coaching a head coach First job at a Power Five school, period. It doesn't matter that Scott play, Scott played here. It's great that he should know what the fabric of what it means to coach at Nebraska. But ultimately, to be very frank with you, you know Scott wasn't here for five years. He was here for you know two and a half years. So, you know the things that normal Nebraska players go went through when we were here. That means being in the north locker room. With hardly any run, you know, hot, you know, running water. Um, if you wanted to drop a deuce, there was that was, you just had to stall, and that was it. So you had to get friendly <laughs> with, with Harrison, you know. We we you know what I'm saying. I mean, it is you had to steal lockers, right? You only had you know one pair of socks, and you know you only could probably you know we had girdles or jock straps. You mm-hmm. you weren't getting all the things of, of the south locker room, but the things that you had to go through in order to get into the north locker room. Built you and and put the foundation into you of what it meant to be a Husker football player. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But then Scott went to Stanford, strength tran- or transferred back, obviously. And when you're a quarterback, he kind of went right into the North locker room because he had already played college football, so he didn't have to go through that. And um and then he came in, and then obviously Tommy left, and the next thing you know he's the quarterback, and so you know that's kind of a you know a snapshot of. <laughs> where you're at, you know, as a head mm-hmm. coach, right? You kind of go to Stanford. Now he, now, he had some success at Stanford, but he had great success at UCF. But then you come back, and then here you're giving the starting quarterback position, and then he earned by those two years of being a, a power five coach. But he didn't have to have a stop after UCF to getting one of the biggest jobs in the nation. But then not only did he get this job, right, he ran the whole place. That's a difference. You are essentially going from, I guess if you look at, I'm not into politics, but if you look at it like, I go from mayor, not to governor, mayor to president of the United States of America, that quick. So that means all the things that you learn along the way, it, you don't get to learn. You don't, you don't have any true failure. You don't have anything to where people are questioning your coaching ability or questioning your game plan. When you show up here, everything that you have done was under the assumption had worked because you went undefeated and on the opposite end, which was us, the blonde hair girl here at Nebraska that was the nicest one out there and wasn't a very good partner, You know where whatever the dynamics was, was a, ultimately the loser in the Big Ten. So the desperation led to that um, decision, but it, I will say this, it was the only decision because if Bill Moose didn't hire Scott Frost, Bill Moose probably would have got fired. So Bill Moose got, you know, extra years on his contract to go along with Scott Frost and it was a good relationship. And and they probably still, you know, obviously talk, I'm I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Both of them have both been paid handsomely off it. <laughs> uh I don't think there was much friction. But the longer Scott Frost was here, the longer Bill Moose was here and things kind of went smoothly, or at least smoothly according to them, the first couple years. But the problem that that was apparent that was smoke and under it was no accountability no structure no mentoring no uh, you know communication that means communication isn't just hearing what they were saying coming out of the program but then also listening to some suggestions and doing it or, or when you or when you're doing things doing it for the true right reason and not doing it just for make it look good in the media and then i'm going to continue to doing what i'm doing doing what i'm doing behind the scenes which is not anything in some, mm-hmm. in some particular cases. And so when that happens is it's, you know you, that, that's the foundation of your program, right? So then what happens is you know you see some players that might talk and do little, right? You see some players that you know fake it till you make it. It looks like they're, they're trying hard and working hard, but in, in really underneath it, they're not really giving you 110 percent. And then when you put that product on the field, that's how you end up 16 and 31. Uh, 23 of the 31 losses are one score games 13 straight single digit losses 22 one score games 12 of them five points or less that's not a talent issue it is not if you ask Nick Saban I, I lost th- if you said Nick Saban you lost 31 times 23 out of those 31 are one score games 13 straight single digits right so that's nine or nine mm-hmm. or less 12 one score games so that's seven or less, right, I think, or six or less, and 12 of those, five points or less, he would tell you that's my fault. How many times have you ever heard that coming out of that program? That's my fault. That's on me.
1: I could tell you when I hit the panic button, when I could tell, like you said, that uh, it wasn't talent. You remember that Minnesota game, the COVID year, when like their entire offensive line was out with yeah. COVID? The entire offensive line was out, and they came in there, and they punished us right. running the ball. And yeah. it was like that right there. It's like they're playing their third-string guys at best, and we can do anything to stop right. Minnesota. They ran their same style and P.J. Fleck. Uh, he's done it for a few hours, a few years now, out-coached us, just right. straight up.
0: Well, here's the funny thing about Minnesota, you know, me being from Minnesota, is Minnesota was on more of a restrictive COVID um, restrictions than Nebraska. So even mm-hmm. when Nebraska was able to kind of do some things leading up to the potential start of the Big Ten season, Minnesota wasn't. Their, all their players were still at home. Yeah. So it was like, this should have been a guaranteed win because – they had a COVID outbreak when they tried to get back together, yep. sent everybody back home for three weeks, then came back, and then they had the injury bug because they weren't able to work out together, which is circumstantial, and then boom, they show up, and they look like they hadn't missed a beat. It w- and it was like they had six days of, of practice, and then they beat the brakes off it. So, you know, those things were tell-all signs, but I think ultimately um, – you know, the overall thing was just the, the 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 fine details of coaching. And that's just, I think, a lack of experience, you know, mm-hmm. and a lack of being in a leadership role to where you have some failures or you have some – really, I think the biggest thing is probably reflection. You know, and, you know, the one thing about the job here at Nebraska, I think Scott's – I don't think Scott would have been – if he would have taken um, – well, being 16 and 31, he wouldn't have lasted four and a half years out of Tennessee or Florida. But I think if he would have been – At one of those schools i don't think he would have lost to that to this magnitude number one you wouldn't have got that far because they would fire you after florida fire you after (laughs) a year or two right you win a national championship go go like six and seven or seven and five they're out of there right you know Mm -hmm. 12 months after national championship i don't think i think the circumstances here if you're not mature and if you don't understand really what it means or really take accountability of really what it means, right? And really understand, like, this is this is a tremendous opportunity that – and here's why I think Nebraska was a tremendous opportunity before we go to break. At, say if I was a coach in Scott's position or in Scott's position, even if I was at UCF or South Florida or wherever I was coaching and I had went 12-0 and or just had a really good year, right? So even a good example is when Willie Taggart had a really good year and got the Oregon job. You know, okay, yep. and then he then he came back to go to Florida State, right? Tremendous opportunity. He's an alumnus. Tremendous opportunity. The reason why is in this day and age of of college football and coaching, unlike when I coached or when I played, excuse me, is the fluidity of being hired and fired. Even if you are an alumnus, the chances of you staying there for ten or fifteen years are slim and none. Slim and none, so. But at Nebraska, being from Nebraska, being a former national champion, going to Oregon and have success, right? Coaching uh, Marcus Mariota, and I think Scott won the um, the Art was Art. It was not Art Brows, but he won the uh, Assistant Coach of the Year. Yeah, one, yeah. Let me right? look up
1: the reward real quick.
0: And then he goes to UCF, right, and wins. You know, six and six when they hadn't won a game, they were 0 and 11 or 0 and 12. Goes it goes six and six, and then he goes You know, wins doubles it and goes 12 and 0 then you are able to come back to the school i'm assuming of your choice right which is the university of nebraska where you where you played at where your family is from um assuming you you know in some form or fashion want to raise your kids around here and so therefore you're going to a place that where you have more stability and job security than if he took the job at the university of tennessee or university of florida which are the two schools that were kind of supposedly vying for him right mm-hmm. Or maybe staying at UCF. Now he could have probably stayed at UCF a little bit longer, but UCF financially wouldn't be able to pay him if he could, if he had a 16 and 31 record in the next four and a half years. If he stayed there, he would have been fired, mm-hmm. right? But in Nebraska, they were not only waiting for you to get it together, they were doubling down on it. So essentially, you got 10 million dollars in your first year to figure it out. But then you continued along to do the things that you did in year one and year two, therefore not recognizing the opportunity that you had to be successful and longevity, meaning he could have coached here for the next 15 years and just said, you know what, I don't know, there's no other place I want to go. Or he could have said, you know what, I've had success here at Nebraska, and then he could probably potentially go to NFL or whatever he wanted to do or take another job. If he would have had success here, he could have went to – whatever he felt like was the, the, a bigger job back to Oregon. He could have, you know, potentially if Notre Dame, he could have went somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Now and it's the Broyles award. That's right, what it's called. The Broyles award. Mm-hmm. Right. I did not want to say Bryles because our brows is, is like a death, death sentence and mention his name. But <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to, you know, that that's really, I think where things got awry, right? You always, people always focus on um, the end result. I think the biggest thing is you got to look at where it started and it's, it's no different than looking at a negative play. So, um, that's my, uh, short, uh, but long take on the tenure of Scott Frost on uh, coming after the break. We're going to kind of break down last year's season, even dive into the Mickey Joseph era of seven weeks and where we go from here on the short segment. So this is inside of the hollow with Jay Foreman. We'll be right back.